I think we are good to go. I don't know who is out there. I determined to do a number of messages on Saturdays just to begin to work some gospel understanding. We could never speak too much about Jesus. We could never talk much about the gospel. And I thought I would do a series of messages before Christmas. If I have strength, if the Lord will grant me more strength, I think I'll do another message titled, What is the Gospel? And so we'll see how that goes. And this is what I'm going to do. Those who join will join us, I guess, later. Some will have to join us a little later because if I wait for everybody, it will be an hour from now. And we have things to do this weekend. And with that, let's go before the Lord in prayer and ask for his blessing. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come this morning for me, for us here, to honor you, to praise you always. Because you are worthy of all glory and praise and honor, majesty, power, dominion, blessing forever and ever. Even our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who is worthy of all these things, of whom you have made our righteousness and holiness and redemption, that if any should boast, they should boast only in him and what he has done. And Lord, we bless you and honor you for your spirit, the Holy Spirit of truth, the spirit of comfort, who continues to teach us the matters of salvation, the matters of Christ, the matters of eternal things, of things that do not perish Lord, now I pray that you help me with speaking the truth. Help those who shall hear this message, for whom this message was made. May you grant them ears and bless them. Lord, we honor you, we glorify you in all things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, in Jesus' name, we have our teaching this morning, this Saturday, is on imputation. And I've titled this message, Imputation and its necessity. Imputation and its necessity. And we begin this way. It is important that we understand the matter of which God calls the gospel. And we must understand it from his definition of it. For it to be the gospel. God is he who defines the parameters of what is the gospel. So we can't just say we believe. You talk to people, a lot of professing Christians who say, oh, I'm a Christian, I believe. But the question is, believe what? They say they believe whom they do not know. As Jesus said to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, he said, woman, you worship, but you know not what. And many people are worshiping, busy worshiping, but they know not what. And many say they are saved. Many say they are Christians. And they will list their accomplishments on their resume to this end and say, see my baptism, my works 
my years in the church. But that kind of testimony is the road to destruction. That is not the road of life. When you still talk about yourself in the matter of life and righteousness, then you are not on the road of life. We also see many preachers and professing Christians, even in the Reformed tradition, even some so-called sovereign grace preachers and people, they'll come and mix things up until we do not know what makes a sinner acceptable before God. They play tricks with words and terms and we use scripture to that end. Just because people are quoting scripture does not mean they know what they're talking about. And so we must learn the truth because scripture needs faithful understanding. And we can't learn and know everything that is false out there. That's not what we are here to do. We can't try and get everything that is false out there. Because falsehood is always mutating like a virus to a different variant. And just like the corona needs a vaccine and this booster. And by the next two, three years, there will be all kinds of vaccines against the coronavirus. We have Moderna, we have Pfizer, we have a whole lot of other people making vaccines. But the gospel is not like that. The gospel is unchangeable. It remains the same. The truth remains the same. So knowing the truth of how God makes a sinner righteous is the only thing that matters here and now and all of eternity. That is the real matter that we are contending for. Because Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And that means we have to let go of all that which is false. And we hear preachers who invite people to Jesus. They are very passionate to bring you to Jesus, but will not tell you or teach you what makes you righteous and why you should come to Christ in the first place. And why Christ? What are the issues with me? What are the issues with you that demand that you and I find our solution to those issues in Christ alone? And another question, is Christ enough to answer to all the problems that I have piled up for myself as a sinner against God? Is Christ enough? But this is a serious matter. Is Jesus enough to answer all the issues that you have between you and God? And another question. Are you a sinner? Not a pretend sinner. Go and talk to people and ask them and say, Oh, ma'am, or say, are you a sinner? <laughs> No, they won't tell you that they're a sinner. They'll say, oh, I make mistakes. 
Once in a while, I do make mistakes, but otherwise, I'm a very good person. Pretend sinner. Not a decent sinner. But a real sinner. Who has no ability to produce any kind of righteousness that God accepts. And moralism is not the righteousness that answers your problems before God. There is no repentance unto life unless God also shows one that they are ungodly. Even on their very best day, God has to show us that. Otherwise, there's no repentance. Many say gospel, Jesus, grace, but who are busy adding a lot of conditions to grace, to the cross. And they defeat or erase everything that is good about Jesus. If Jesus is not enough for you, all by himself, then Jesus is not good for you for anything. I have to say that again. If Jesus is not enough for you, complete in him, all by himself, then he is not good for anything, not for a sinner. So we have to know the truth. And the gospel has a lot of moving parts. And we must know what they are. Know what they are and believe what they are. What is the matter for which Christ was revealed? Why did Jesus come? Jesus did not come for Christmas. <laughs> Jesus did not come for us to buy Christmas presents. He came to save his people. They elect from their sins. In other words, from the condemnation of their sins. To meet all the requirements for them. For eternal life. Hear me, someone. Jesus came that he may meet all the requirements for eternal life for all those that were given him by the Father. That is what he came to do. And that is what he accomplished. That is what he meant when he said, it is finished. He had met every jot and tittle of the requirements of eternal life and righteousness for his people. So why did Christ come and not an angel? Why did God send Jesus and not an angel? Why not angel Gabriel? Why did God not just have you and I redeem ourselves? Why? This is very important. And the answer is because the redemption price, which means the price for our freedom, was above our ability to give, our ability to pay, even 
by the holiest of angels, they could not pay for our redemption price. And that is why Jesus said, what do a man give in exchange for his soul? A lot of people, I would say 99% of the messages that I've had preaching from that text of Mark 8, they don't understand what Jesus was asking. Why shall a man give in exchange for their soul? What shall you give this very day to God in exchange for your soul? What do you have? What do you have? Because if we don't ask this question, then we cannot answer it correctly in the way that God has answered it. What shall you give in exchange? There has to be an exchange. Here, the Holy Spirit, in Psalm 49, if you have your Bible, Psalm 49, you have to underline verses 6 to 9, because they're very, very important. Psalm 49, verses 6 to 9. And for anybody who may be new to my teaching, I teach and preach. So we work the text. Because I cannot come and make arguments about eternity without drawing the arguments from the text. So we have to get all our thinking and our understanding from the text. Anything that is going to be binding on your conscience has to be from the text and properly understood. Let's go to Psalm 49, 6 to 9, the psalmist says, Those who trust in their wealth and boast in the multitude of their riches. They boast in the things that they've done with their hands. That's what that is saying. Even self-righteousness is trusting in the multitude of your riches, of things that you've done, to redeem yourself, to present yourself before God. Verse 7. None of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. Why? Verse 8. For the redemption of their souls is costly. For the redemption of their souls is costly. And it shall cease forever that he should continue to live eternally and not see the pit. The redemption of the soul is costly. But how costly? How much money do you have to give? Impossible with man. Impossible with an angel. That's how costly it is. The Holy Spirit says, stop trying. Give up. It cannot be done. In other words, there's absolutely nothing that a sinner can give to God for them to not see the pit. To redeem themselves. To justify themselves. To make themselves holy. Forget about these people who talk about their holiness. They have no holiness. They have none. So back to the question. What shall a man give in exchange for their soul? What do we have to give? 
Because this is a question that we have to answer as soon as we are born. Every man, woman, or child has this question to answer. And how has God proposed to deal with the question? And that takes us to the matter of the doctrine of imputation. The God of the Bible is the God of imputation. What does it mean to impute? It means to charge or to reckon something to someone's account. It means to charge something into someone's account. So it is both a legal and accounting term that respects the transfer, not of material things, but a reckoning of merit or demerits into one's account. And this imputation is the foundation of the gospel. It is the foundation of the good news. And if this is not believed upon, there's no good news for you. Absolutely no good news. Once you destroy imputation, there's no good news. There's no hope for you. Grace does not work without imputation. That's the only way for grace to work. And so to deny imputation is to deny God's message. It is to deny Christ's work. So what does the Bible say about this matter of imputation and righteousness? And with that, let's go to Romans chapter 4. We need to go to Romans chapter 4 where this doctrine was taught by Paul. Romans 4, beginning at verse 1. Paul argues and says Paul is talking to the Jews. And he is telling the Jews who think life and righteousness comes from the law. And Paul says, no. This matter of justification, this matter of imputation is not a new thing. Even your very father Abraham was made righteous, not by works of the law, but by the imputation of righteousness. Okay? So let's go there. Romans 4 verse 1. Paul says, What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? What did he find? For if Abraham was justified by works, if Abraham was made righteous before God by his works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. He can boast about that to Hagar and Sarah and all the people in his neighborhood, but not before God. It's not going to work. Verse 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. It was credited to him for righteousness. How did Abraham become righteous? It was by God imputing righteousness to him, righteousness which was apart from the works. That means he got righteous by an act of God's grace. 
by a declaration of God. Why? Because if it were of something or conditioned on something that Abraham did, then he would have something to boast. And God hates boasting. Because boasting is about the glory and pride of man. And so, imputation removes all grounds of boasting. Because it is 100% of grace. And that is why it is through faith. Faith which is a gift of God. Faith, hear me someone. Faith is not the grounds of imputation. You are not made righteous by believing. Faith is a result of being made righteous by imputation. Faith is a result. It is a fruit of being righteous by imputation. So any attempt to condition salvation on the sinner destroys the matter and only just grounds of salvation, which is the imputation of Christ's righteousness. And so, related to this, is the matter of the law. The law is not of faith. The law is not of faith. I don't know if Reformed people understand this. The law is not of faith. And thus our doing of it or not doing it is not the basis of one standing before God. Why? Verse 4 of Romans 4. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace but as debt. To him who works, to him who gets busy, the wages of their labor is not counted as grace but as debt. And the law is of works. The law is of laboring. And the works of the law are not counted as grace but debt owed to God. If you work for salvation, it means God has to pay you, pay you back for what you did to cause yourself to be righteous. <laughs> and God says, no. He cannot give life based on something that he owes someone. God does not owe you and me eternal life and righteousness. God owes no one nothing. The life that he gives is his life. The righteousness that he gives is his righteousness. He was never indebted to anyone so as to be obligated to serve them or to give his life as payment for something. No. That's nothing that God requires. For salvation comes apart from imputation. Let me say that again. There's nothing that God requires today and in all of eternity 
that he requires for your righteousness and your fitting for eternal life that does not come by way of imputation. It has to be freely given and wholly given or he does not give it at all. If God does not give it for free, he does not give at all. If salvation is not for free, then there's no salvation to talk about. That is the matter of grace. That is the matter of imputation. So imputation is not God pulling things from thin air. It means him freely crediting the merit of Christ into your account. God freely and unconditionally gives you the merit of Christ into your account. And so Paul expanded this thought and said in verse 5 of Romans 4, but to him who does not work, but to him who does not work, but believes in him or believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. To him who does not work. Did you hear that? To him who does not work. To him who does not work, who does nothing. Like zero. Who does not work. But believes. They're just sitting on the couch. Lazy boy theology. That's what I call it. Just sitting on your lazy boy couch and believing God's testimony, God says, you are righteous. And that's it. <laughs> this matter of doing nothing in salvation, religion hates. They do not want to hear about doing nothing. They despise and oppose anyone who says salvation is for those who do not work to be righteous. They will come and put a million but, buts. No, but, uh, but, but. What are they trying to do? They're trying to overturn the truth of God's salvation. They reveal that they are not converted. They don't understand the matter. There's no but when it comes to the matter of the sufficiency of Christ. Christ said it's finished in, and that's a period. It's done. We are justified. We are holy. It's done. There's no but, 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 but. If anything, it's but God. That's the only place where but is more useful. But God, who is rich in mercy, right? Ephesians 2. <laughs> Paul says, God is he who justifies the ungodly. He calls them righteous. You and I are the ungodly. You are not righteous. Even on your best day, you are not righteous. There's no way. You are not righteous. You are ungodly. You're a sinner. That is why righteousness has to be imputed. 
<laughs> God justifies the ungodly. How? How does God declare the ungodly like you and me as righteous? By the free imputation of Christ's righteousness. This righteousness is imputed through faith. But faith is not the cause of it, as I said. Faith is not the condition that one meets to have righteousness imputed to them. It's not something that you find in your hearts of hearts and find the faith and then God says, Oh, Chloe, I didn't see that you had such wonderful faith. Let me give you my righteousness this day. It does not work like that. The faith that meets the condition is the faithfulness of Christ. The faith that meets the condition of righteousness is the faithfulness of Christ in his obedience to the Father. The faithfulness of Christ is your righteousness. That is what is imputed to you by God. So righteousness is imputed because one is chosen in Christ and that Christ accomplished that righteousness by which God imputes as the just and justifier of those who come to him by Christ. Now Paul, Apostle Paul continued to contend and illustrate the doctrine by pulling another example from the Old Testament and say this about David. In verse 6 to 8 of Romans 4, hear this. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. David celebrated and preached the truth of sin not being imputed to the blessed man. David, a real sinner. David, an adulterer. David, a murderer. None of his sins imputed to him. David, a righteous man. How? Not because he repented enough. Not because he became a wonderful husband and king. But because God did not impute his sins to him. The majority of which we don't even know. None of his sins were imputed to him. And Paul is saying this. Watch this. Paul is saying to the Jews, look at your forefathers, the very important figures in your history. Abraham, how did God make him a righteous man? It was by imputation of righteousness. Look at your father David, the one that you love, the king from whom you were expecting the Messiah. How did David become righteous? He became righteous because sin was not imputed to him and righteousness was imputed to him instead. So this doctrine is not a new doctrine. It's an Old Testament doctrine. Okay? 
sins not imputed and covered by the righteousness of Christ. But how did we get there? How did we get there? Where does imputation begin in the matter of salvation? What does the text say? In the matter of salvation, in the matter of sin and salvation, the Bible teaches three, three imputations. And we'll go to Romans chapter 5. Let's go to Romans chapter 5 if you have your Bible. Romans chapter 5 says, beginning from verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Adam, the first man, represented all of humanity without exception. All born of a woman were born in Adam. Christ alone was born outside of Adam. But Paul says, death spread to all men because all sinned. How did all sin when they were not born at the same time? How did we become sinners when we were not even in the garden? They sinned through union and representation. If you have somewhere to write, I need you to write this because it's very, very, very important to your gospel understanding. Union and representation. Adam represented all of humanity by God's appointment and declaration. They were all in the loins of Adam. Thus God imputed the sin and consequences of Adam's disobedience to all men such that none is born with righteousness. No matter how innocent. Being innocent is not the same as being righteous. Adam was made innocent. He was created innocent. But he was not as righteous as Christ was righteous. See the difference. Even if Adam had not sinned, he did not have enough righteousness to merit eternal life for you and me. Even if Adam had not sinned, his righteousness was not good enough to merit eternal life and righteousness before God. So it was good and necessary that he should sin, that we would possess the righteousness of Christ. That is the proper way to understand sin. This is the proper way for us to understand sin. Sin had to come that we may possess the righteousness of Christ. That's the proper way 
to understand sin. So God sees all men in Adam in terms of their beginning. It is impossible, my brother and sister, to be in Christ and not have passed through Adam at some point. Only Christ Jesus was born outside of Adam because he was conceived of the Holy Spirit. Salvation is a passing from the first Adam, from the one man to the other man, Christ Jesus. The one man of death. The one man of death is Adam. The old creation is Adam into the one man of life, the new creation that is Christ Jesus. He has passed from death unto life, from the death of the one man unto the life of the other man, Christ Jesus. So it is impossible to talk about righteousness without talking about Adam. The imputation of righteousness is necessitated by the fact that we passed through Adam and came out with an empty bag. We came out of Adam with nothing. Even more, we came out in serious debt. We came out with nothing to give God, no ability to do anything by ourselves. See the effect of representation and union with Adam and the imputation that God did. Verse 14, still in Romans 5, Paul says, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. So death reigned to all men by an act of imputation. Adam was a type of the one who was to come. He was a type of Christ also as the federal head. But also in having his sin imputed to the ones who had not sinned in his manner. Hear me someone. We did not sin the way of Adam. And yet we became liable for the sin of Adam. It affected us. It brought sin and death to us. And yet looking to something greater than that. Because now, by the same doctrine of imputation, we have been constituted, we have been declared to be righteous by an act and a work of another. An act not of our doing. We are righteous by a work of someone else doing. That is how God determined to deal with the matter. Its union, its representation, its substitution. It's union, it's representation, it's substitution. So that the imputation, so the imputation of Adam's sin is the grounds of condemnation. The imputation of Adam's sin is the grounds of condemnation. 
as the imputation of the righteousness of Christ is the only grounds of justification. So we have the two men juxtaposed to each other. Adam, condemnation. Sin, death and condemnation. And we have the one man, Christ Jesus. And the doctrine that is operating is imputation, is union, is substitution, is representation. And so, now, Paul says this to the other imputation in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God made Christ, the sinless and righteous one, to be seen for us. And that means to stand in our place and be condemned for our sin. That's what that means. It does not mean that Christ became a sinner. No, that's not what is being said. It is the matter of union and representation. Imputation of sin debt. Guilt to him. So our sin was reckoned to him to deal with it as if it was his own. To work, to labor, in tears, to make satisfaction of it. Even the death of the cross, standing in the place of all the elect, those whose sins were accounted to him as their surety. So there is union here and representation in Christ as it was in Adam. But Christ comes as the new head of humanity, the new head who represents you apart from sin and righteousness because he is the Holy One of God. He comes as the humanity head of the elect, not of all the people who have ever lived. No, Christ is only the head of the elect. And he comes from a different fountain, comes untainted with sin. And that's what God looks at as your record. That's imputation. When Adam stood for all of humanity, he brought sin and death. But what did Christ bring when he stood for his people? Paul says that we might become, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's what Christ brought for all those that are in him. We have become the righteousness of God in him. How? By the imputation of his righteousness to us. God reckons the righteousness of Christ that came by way of his death to the accounts of all the redeemed elect. As I said, this righteousness is imputed freely and unconditionally and that means you cannot mess it up because it was never about you. It was never about Kelly. You did not cause it. You can't keep it. 
you have no ability to lose it. You have no ability to lose the righteousness that God has given you. It's impossible. Christ has sealed it by the giving of the Holy Spirit. And there's nothing that you can do to take away the Holy Spirit from you. You can't wash the Holy Spirit away from you. Can't be done. So faith is not the merit or cause of imputation. I just thought that I should hammer that home. Faith is not the cause because in the reform circles, they end up conditioning faith as the cause of imputation of righteousness. That's not true. The imputation of Adam's sin made us unrighteous and sinful people. The imputation of Christ's righteousness makes us righteous, but it does not make us righteous people in ourselves. Because our flesh was formed in Adam. But the question would be, and I talk to a lot of people, they say, oh brother, I still struggle with sin. And because of that, I doubt my salvation. Like, okay, what do you know about salvation? Who told you that you don't sin anymore once you've come to Christ? Imputation of righteousness does not stop you from being a sinner. It declares you to be righteous before God in spite of your sin. Scandalous. <laughs> it's a scandal. The righteousness that we possess is a righteousness that's legal. It's a righteousness that has been settled for us in the books of heaven. If the books of heaven are opened with regards to your case, with regards to your issue, they have no record of your sin. Why? Because God has put that righteousness that answers all the demands of divine justice. It's only the righteousness that is imputed that answers all the demands of divine justice. Because when you hear preachers and people talk, they have no idea about the matter of divine justice. And so they have no regard or they have a low regard for the cross. They have a low regard for grace. Because grace is saying, I have met all the demands of divine justice on your behalf and all that has been imputed to your account. So take it. It's yours. Run with it by faith. Now, we get to midway of our teaching. I want to illustrate this doctrine. Please stick around if you can. This is very, very wonderful teaching. We have to illustrate this doctrine. And we illustrate it with the story of Miss Potiphar. And we know this story very well, but much of the teaching that you hear from the pulpits is about running from sin and temptation. And the whole matter of the gospel is lost. Oh, run away from sin. 
or do not compromise with sin, run away, just as Joseph did. <laughs> Lord have mercy. There are two kinds of problems with that kind of teaching. Number one, it assumes that one is Joseph in that story, which is false. Joseph does not represent you and me. Joseph represents Christ as a type of Christ. He is a picture of Christ. Let us work the text. Please go to Genesis 39. Go to Genesis chapter 39. Because you have to hear the details. Genesis 39. So Genesis 39 actually is the text of our message. <laughs> Genesis 39, starting at verse 1, Moses records and says, Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. So Joseph is in Egypt, in Potiphar's house as a servant. And you know the whole story, how he got there by the brothers being jealousy of him and they sold him to the Ishmaelites. We have a lot of wonderful gospel messages from that. But let's continue with our text. Verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph and he was a successful man and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made all he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and served him. Then he made him overseer of his house and all that he had he put under his authority. So see what God is doing. He is building a profile and testimony for Joseph, setting the stage for gospel teaching. Verse 5 and following. So it was from the time that he had made him overseer of his house and all that he had that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake and the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. Thus he left all that he had in Joseph's hand and he did not know what he had except for the bread which he ate. So essentially... Joseph had been put in charge of everything that was in Potiphar's house. In charge of everything. And that is telling you and I that Joseph is a type of Christ. And Mr. Potiphar is a type of God the Father. Because it is in God's house that Christ has been given charge of everything. Christ has been given all power and authority in all the matters of God. See the picture? Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And this was the beginning of trouble. Joseph was handsome. Why handsome in form and appearance? To begin to lay the foundation of the gospel testimony. It is very important that Joseph is a very handsome guy. Otherwise, the story will not happen the way that God wrote it. Verse 7. And it came to pass 
after these things that his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph and she said, lie with me. So the master's wife, Miss Potiphar, sought an occasion for the flesh with Joseph, which is understandable because the Holy Spirit told us that Joseph was a very handsome guy. So her flesh got the best of her. Verse 8. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Look, my master does not know what is with me in the house. And he has committed all that he has to my hand. There is no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph says, no, Miss Potiphar, this is not going to work. See how much I have been entrusted to the care of this house by your husband. There's no one greater. I've been given charge over all things, but obviously I cannot breach this boundary against my master. This is not going to work. Verse 10. So it was, as she spoke to Joseph day by day, that he did not heed her to lie with her or to be with her. So Miss Potiphar is incessant in her demands. She is not backing off. Listen to me, someone. Sin has gotten her very good and she can't think. There's something about sin that is so overwhelming that you can't think. Day by day, she comes begging and nagging. And that to say that is the sinner with sin, that is you every day, the flesh is begging and nagging us to sin against God, to lie with it, that we may be condemned. That's what sin does every single day, just as Miss Potiphar. Every day she came and nagging. She had to get what she wanted to get. Verse 11. But it happened about this time when Joseph went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was inside that she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. Pay attention to those details. Miss Potiphar is on hot pursuit. She decided to take matters into her own hands. She was going to rape Joseph, force him into the act. But Joseph was fast and strong and took off his garment, his cloak, and left it in her hand and fled and ran outside. And there were no witnesses to it. Pay attention to that. None of the servants were there to witness it. So Miss Potiphar has no witness to what just happened. 
whilst there are useful moral lessons to be drawn, salvation does not come from us getting to be more moral people. It is not us leaving our garments behind. Although there are benefits to doing that, but salvation does not happen that way. That is the deception of religion. Religion will say, oh see, be like Joseph. Joseph ran away from a sinful situation. That's not the point of the story. That's not the point of the story. God does not waste time writing a whole chapter to teach you and I about some woman called Miss Potiphar. No, he does not do that. This story is the story about his son. This story is the story of Christ. Hear the testimony of Miss Potiphar, the false testimony of Miss Potiphar, verse 13 to 15, still in Genesis 39. And so it was when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled outside that she called the men of her house and spoke to them, saying, See, he has brought in to us a Hebrew to mock us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice, and it happened when he heard that I lifted my voice and cried out that he left his garment with me and fled and went outside. Miss Potiphar tries hard to incriminate Joseph. She was mad. Miss Potiphar is angry. No one has seen what had happened and she could have kept quiet. But no, she has to cover her bases just in case, just in case. She must build her version of the story that will vindicate her before her husband. Should the husband come home and ask for Joseph's whereabouts and say, what happened to Joseph? Where is Joseph? Miss Potiphar is a stay-at-home wife. She is a stay-at-home wife. And I am thinking, just speculation, that she did not have any children. But Miss Potiphar is not happy about being shunned by Joseph. She thought to herself, very beautiful, that Joseph would just fall into her hands. She's thinking, look at me, Joseph, I am so cute. I am Miss Potiphar's wife, I am so beautiful. She was a slave queen. <laughs> Going about a slaying business. Miss Potiphar, a slave queen, a real sinner. Miss Potiphar is a real sinner. Verse 16. So she kept his garment with her until his master came home. She kept his garment until the master, the husband came home. She kept it with her. She did not give it to the servants to keep it for her. No, she kept it to herself. That whole day, she was hoarding to it. She needed this garment. 
that smelled of Joseph. This garment smelled of Joseph. This garment had to be the one that Mr. Potiphar would be able to identify as belonging to Joseph. Miss Potiphar cannot go and get the garment of one of the other servants. It does not work. It does not help a story. And so she holds tenaciously to this garment of Joseph. She could not get the garment of another. She could not get the garment of another to vindicate her story. Sister Kelly, did you understand that? Did you hear me? She could not get the garment of another to vindicate her story. She could not. She could not get the righteousness of another to vindicate her story. You understand me? This is what she compiled for her evidence to convict Joseph and for her to vindicate her righteousness. I'm sure Joseph had a lot of other things in that house that he left behind in Potiphar's house. If it were in our time, Joseph would have had his iPad and iPhone there with him. He left a whole lot of things in Potiphar's house. And yet, there was only one thing that was necessary. There was only one thing, the testimony of the garment that was in her hands. Verse 17. Then she spoke to him with words like these, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you brought to us, came in to me to mock me. So it happened as I lifted my voice and cried out that he left his garment with me and fled outside. Do you see that? That testimony has been repeated three times by Miss Potiphar. Three times. Here a testimony to Miss Potiphar. She says the Hebrew servant came and mocked me. He came and tried to abuse me. And this was a false charge against Joseph, a false charge against Christ. Christ was falsely accused by the very people that he came to redeem. But she says, but I cried out for help and I got no help. But he got scared and he left his garment with me and fled outside. What is that saying? That is saying this is what he accomplished. He left his garment and then he left outside. That is what Christ did to all the adulterers and adulteresses like you and me and Miss Potiphar. He came and left his garment and he left. He left his garment with them for the sake of their own vindication on judgment day. Christ has left his garment of righteousness for our vindication on judgment day. That is the only thing that God has given us for vindication. He left his garment. Oh, he left his garment. Thank God that Christ left his garment. 
Christ left his garment of righteousness. See this. Joseph was very strong. He was a very strong young man and he could have wrestled against Miss Potiphar and taken away his garment from her. And yet he left it behind. And that to say the garment of righteousness that Christ has given us was by his grace was not forced, Christ was not forced to give us righteousness. He willingly gave himself. He willingly gave us life and righteousness. Verse 19. So it was when his master heard the words which his wife spoke to him, saying, your servant did to me after this manner, that his anger was aroused. (laughs) Mr. Potiphar is angry and that is speaking to the wrath of God remember Mr. Potiphar is a type of God the Father Miss Potiphar is a type of you and me and Joseph is a type of Christ so the anger of Mr. Potiphar is representing the wrath of God answer me now to the payment of Miss Potiphar's sin The sin of Miss Potiphar has to be paid for. Miss Potiphar was supposed to go to jail. Miss Potiphar was supposed to get divorced. If the husband knew exactly what happened, Miss Potiphar was supposed to go to jail and be divorced. She was going to get a beating from her husband. But Miss Potiphar is a free woman. Miss Potiphar is a free woman. Miss Potiphar gets to hang out with the girls. She gets to go to the mall for shopping. Miss Potiphar does not suffer the consequences of a sin. This sinner is free. This sinner who's supposed to go to jail is a free woman and that's scandalous. But she can't be free just because. You and I cannot be free just because. God cannot save you just because. Someone must pay. Someone must pay for your freedom. Someone must redeem. A payment is required for your redemption. Someone who did not commit the crime must go to prison. Someone has to suffer. Someone has to pay. Someone has to stand in your place. Joseph the innocent must pay. Do you know something about Joseph? Do you know that in the Bible, Joseph is one person of whom we have zero record of his sin. Like zero. Why? Because he's a picture of Christ. It is not saying that he was not a sinner. But God presented him this way so that he would give us the picture of Christ. So Joseph has to go and stand in the place of Miss Potiphar. Her freedom did not come free. Someone had to go to jail. Hear this. Verse 20. Then Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's 
prisoners were confined and he was there in prison. Joseph was put into prison by who? By his master, by Mr. Potiphar. And that means Christ was God's righteous servant who was put under judgment and suffering by God. Christ suffered because of God. He was smitten of God. Of God the Father. Let me take you back to verse 20 again. I need you to see something very, very important. Verse 20. The text says, Then Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were confined. The king's prisoners were in the same place as Joseph. In this prison we found the king's prisoners. The king is a type of God. And they were confined there. And that means you and I were the king's prisoners. Confined because of sin. And in this place of our confinement, Joseph as a type of Christ has come. So Joseph has to enter into the same place where the king's prisoners are because Christ has to be joined into the condemnation of his people. That union with Christ. Christ has to be joined. He has to be identified with you and I. And that's why he came and took up human flesh. Verse 21 to 23. We're almost done. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy. And he gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. The Lord was with Joseph. Christ was always with the Father. The Father was always with Christ. And the keeper of the prison, hear this, committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners. <laughs> If this is not gospel stuff, what is this? The keeper of the prison committed all the prisoners into the hands of Joseph. All the prisoners who were in the prison, whatever they did, it was his doing. Whatever they did, it was his doing. The keeper of the prison did not look into anything that was under Joseph's authority. Because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made it prosper. So the keeper of the prison is also a type of God the Father. Because God the Father is he who has committed the welfare of the prisoners to Christ. And Joseph is a type of Christ. So even in prison, in the prison of sin, Christ is still with us. He is the one responsible for all of our salvation. Everything has been put into his hands. So all the prisoners who were in prison were committed to Joseph's hands. And that means all of salvation committed to Christ and to no other. Our salvation was 100% committed to Christ Jesus. And that is why we oppose 
any conditionalism, any conditioning salvation on what a sinner does. Because the whole matter of salvation is salvation of a prisoner by Christ. Christ is he who was committed to that. I wanted to point you to something before I conclude the message. In the text of Genesis 39, we are told that when Miss Potiphar looked at Joseph, she was attracted because of his form and appearance. Miss Potiphar is a sinner. And she is attracted to a type of Christ. And that means your sin and mine are there so that we may be attracted to the person of Christ, that we may find Christ wonderful. We may find beauty in Christ because of what he has done for us. Christ is only attractive to us as much as we see him as our only savior, as much as we see ourselves in the testimony of Miss Potiphar as sinners. You understand me? Also, the text said, there were no witnesses. There were no witnesses when Miss Potiphar tried to rape Joseph. Why? Because there's only one witness to your righteousness. There's only one witness to your righteousness, and it is the garment that Joseph gave. No other witness. That's the reason why the other servants did not come, because God was saying, there's only one thing that shall vindicate you as righteous, one thing that is needful, and that is the righteousness of Christ. That's what I mean. So, conclude our message this way, by asking and answering questions. How did Miss Potiphar not go to jail? How did Miss Potiphar not go to jail? In other words, how did you not get condemned? You know yourself, yes, you know. How did Miss Potiphar keep a marriage to Mr. Potiphar? How did she keep a marriage? She was an unfaithful wife. How did she keep her marriage? She surely was deserving of divorce. How do you keep your marriage to God? Knowing your unfaithfulness to him, how do you keep it? What did Miss Potiphar give in exchange for her soul? And that takes us back to the beginning of our message. What shall a man give in exchange for their soul? What did Miss Potiphar give in exchange for her soul? What happened to Miss Potiphar? Miss Potiphar did not go to jail because of the doctrine of imputation. Now we are going full circle. The doctrine of imputation is at the heart of the freedom of Miss Potiphar. She did not go to jail because of the garment of Joseph. 
that was left in her possession. She guarded it with all that she had because she knew that that was the only way of vindicating her story. Her sin was not imputed to her, but to Joseph. See that imputation again. The Joseph who did not sin in her manner was made sin for her that she may become righteous in the eyes of her husband. Miss Potiphar became righteous because of the righteousness of another. She became righteousness because of Joseph. And so Joseph was sentenced to prison time on account of the sin of another to make propitiation of her shenanigans. Propitiation, satisfaction. Joseph had to go to prison on account of the sins of another. And so Christ, because of our sins and his righteousness, freely imputed is the only matter in the matter of salvation. Christ and his righteousness imputed. Not righteousness imparted. Not righteousness infused. But righteousness imputed. Miss Potiphar was still Miss Potiphar. Miss Potiphar was still a sinner. And yet she got vindication. And yet she was not condemned. And yet she did not go to jail. Without imputation, Miss Potiphar is not going to be looking pretty in prison. If Joseph does not go in a place, this pretty girl cannot survive prison life. And that to say, without the imputation of our sin to Christ and Christ's righteousness to us, there's no gospel, there's no life, but only condemnation. But Miss Potiphar was saved from prison was vindicated by the one and only garment, the one and only garment. Do you have the one and only garment is our gospel of the one and only garment. Not the flip-flops of Joseph. The one and only garment. The only gospel in which the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Miss Potiphar held tightly to that garment because her life depended on it. She was holding tightly to that garment because her life depended on it. You and I have to hold tightly to the gospel of God's free and sovereign grace because our life depends on it. That is the only gospel. She held it tightly. <laughs> Not to lose sight of it. Because God is speaking. God is teaching you and I. Of the matter that has made us holy and righteous before him. The righteousness of Christ. Let me say a few more words and then we'll close up this thing. The garment that Miss Potiphar had. Is that which her husband recognized and 
It was not of one of the servants. It was not the garment of Moses, the servant of Christ. And this to say, God only recognizes the righteousness of Christ in salvation and not your righteousness before the law of trying to be good and progressive sanctification. There's no progressive sanctification that won't vindicate you before God. He is looking for the one thing, the one thing, the garment that he left of his son. Not the one that you're trying to stitch yourself. Mr. Potiphar knows the garment of Joseph when he sees it. And he accepted it for the vindication of his wife. So God knows the garments of Christ. He recognizes them as the garments of his son. And only based on that does he vindicate us as righteous. So those who don't understand this matter will say a lot of pompous words, arrogant words about you must do this and that to have the vindication of righteousness. No, there's no doing this and that. There's only a hoarding of that garment that Joseph left behind, the righteousness that Christ left behind. And Joseph is not coming back to reclaim his garment and so salvation can not be lost. And the testimony of Miss Potiphar stands, even though Miss Potiphar was lying, guess what? Her testimony still stands because she has the garment. And even youths who stumble with sin today and tomorrow and next week and next year, and yet the testimony of the righteousness of Christ still stands. And that is God's gospel. And that is to say, Righteousness can only be imputed because that is the only way to satisfy God's justice through the obedience of another, the obedience of Christ. Righteousness can only be imputed because God will not let anyone to glory in his presence because of anything that they did. Righteousness can only be imputed because apart from imputation, you and I are going to hell. The righteousness that is freely imputed is the righteousness of God. And I just wanted to say this also. I want people to get this straight in their heads. If you shall be saved, you cannot be Joseph. Joseph has no record of sin. You and I have records of sin. You did not leave your garment behind for anyone for their salvation. Joseph did in the picture of Christ. And that is say, you and I are Miss Potiphar. And I know it's offensive to a lot of people. <laughs> it's offensive. They don't want to be called Miss Potiphar because they think they are better than her. What they don't realize is that they are worse than Miss Potiphar. May God cause you, my brother and sister, to see your testimony in her and to embrace her because she represents your hope before God. This is who you are. 
And that is how God has served the adulterers and adulterers of the world like you and I. Yes, it is offensive. I'll say that again. But that is the only message that we have. That is God's gospel. And we see in that story the matter of imputation and how it saved Miss Potiphar from death. The matter of imputation and how it saved you and I from wrath and gave us life and righteousness in Christ. Okay? All right. You're done. Amen. <laughs> Lot of mercy. Thank you for tuning in. Okay, I look forward to coming and sharing all these wonderful things that the Lord gives me. And I am telling you the truth. This is a wonderful message that will minister a lot of hope for you to know how God sees you in Christ. Understand that. Because sin is going to kick you one way or the other. Okay? And the way to find yourself again is to go back to this doctrine, imputation of righteousness. Okay? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we thank you for this message. We thank you for showing us the testimony of Christ in the story of Joseph, Miss Potiphar, and Mr. Potiphar. We thank you that you have revealed to us the matter of the transaction of salvation by way of imputation, Miss Potiphar getting in trouble because of a sin, and yet Miss Potiphar not going to prison. Yet Miss Potiphar, being a free woman, on account of Joseph, was condemned in a place. A sin being imputed to Joseph, and the righteousness of Joseph imputed to her, as testified by the garment that was left in her possession. And we now, by faith, possess the same garment of Christ. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, for teaching us, showing us all these wonderful things. I pray that you bring your people. And I thank you for these who have gathered this morning with us to hear this message. May you bring them always to this kind of teaching that they may remain encouraged. Lord, we honor you. We thank you. We ask for a blessing for this day and tomorrow as we gather again to hear the testimony of Christ. We honor you, glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.